Hello and welcome to episode 25 of the Highland Bridge Builders podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Fagala, and on today's podcast, we have Scott Frizzell teaching us on part two of our apologetics series. This series is coming from the book On Guard by William Lane Craig, an excellent book. I highly recommend it. And we're going to be answering the question this morning, can we be good without God? Here's Scott. Okay, so before we get started, I'm going to play a quick game. I know, but it's going to require some participation. So it's always a bummer when you try to do something and no one participates. So don't do that to me. Here's how this is going to work. Uh, You need to utilize people around you. So that means you get to guilt the people around you into participating. (laughs) And likewise, they will be guilted by you expecting them to participate. So um, we're playing a word association game. I'm sure you've played something like it before, right? Where I tell you a word and then you say the first thing that pops in your head. So you're saying this to the person next to you because if you raise your hand, you'll have time to think about it and then it'll be filtered and it won't be as fun. So to the people generally around you, just as soon as I say the word, say first thing that jumps in your brain and then you're responsible for reporting on the people around you what you heard. Does that make sense? Yes. That way no one cheats. Okay. So first word, snow. Swim. Okay. I couldn't hear everything that happened. Bill was loud. I heard slip. Sled. 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 Oh, I didn't hear it at all. All right. What else? What else came up? Flake. Cold. Elsa. Elsa. That's a good one. Anything else weird? No. Okay. Next word. Apples. Oranges. That is interesting. (laughs) Anything else interesting? What do we think of when we say apples? Juice, Johnny, Apple, C. Okay, <laughs> you're a step ahead of us all there. We were all thinking it. Okay, <laughs> you you were definitely thinking it. Okay, Johnny Appleseed. Okay, how about here's another one, Brecian. Tattoos, tattoos, enthusiasm, clothes. Listens to this. This is great. Oh, he does. Good. Yeah. Coffee. Fashion. Fashion. <laughs> Anyone else hear anything weird? Pants. Dance. dance. <laughs> I thought of pants. Clearly, uh, dance. Tennis shoes, yeah. Okay. Um, harder words, harder words, okay. So um, emotion. Cry. Cry. That's a good one. Smiling, crying. Breaching. Breaching. That's good. Our brain's there. Actually, when I was brainstorming my words, I noticed they were all like connected in my, like I was one to the next, so I had to revisit it, okay? Good. Bad. Game of opposites, right? Anyone else? Everyone stopped commenting when they got hard, right? Yeah. When it was apples and breach and everyone had something to say, but then like emotion and good, no one had anything. Anything else, anyone? Well, now it doesn't matter anymore, right? Because now if you say it, it's cheating, right? Yeah, it's been too long. Okay, so today our topic um, is supposed to be, uh, can we be good without God? Which kind of, to me, the first question is, well, okay, then what is good? And clearly, no one wants to speak out on that, at least off the cuff, right? I think we all kind of have an idea of what good is to us, but maybe not a great definition in our brain. Uh, And we'll get there in a minute. But so when I found out that I had the topic, um, unlike Kyle, I'm not a perfectionist. I like to let things just sit on my brain. And then whenever an idea pops in my head, I run with it. So sometimes I'm waiting until the very last minute for something to just click. And sometimes it happens like weeks in advance. You never know. So it was kind of sitting on my brain for a few weeks. 
and I was teaching my classes at school and I just kept like connecting it with one of my history classes. So I apologize, I'm gonna go history teacher today. Um, I've got some history tidbits I have to share with you, but I think they inform where we're going. So when I stop talking about the Bible for the next like 10 minutes, I promise it's valuable. And if you hated history in school, I promise it will be better than that, I hope. Um, but what happened was, as I was teaching my classes uh, this week, one class in particular, I teach an African-American history class with juniors and seniors. Um, it's dual enrollment with University of Memphis, so you know I get to ask them questions that maybe I wouldn't get to ask my sixth grade history class when we talk about Egyptians and mummies. Um, but it kept coming back to me. So it's two stories, um, and then after the stories, we'll kind of make some connections and, and look at the text a little bit. So uh, the year is 1899. The dawn of the 20th century is almost here. Uh, the setting is suburban Atlanta, Georgia. Okay, so for those of you who don't care much about history, this is a couple of decades after the Civil War, the South has been rebuilding. One of the big things is kind of developing metropolises, right? So Atlanta's on the rise as this big city, the suburbs are popping up. Um, and there is a man uh, named Sam Hose. Sam is a sharecropper, kind of in rural Atlanta, right around the suburbs. Um, sharecropping was really the only job option open to most African Americans in the South at the time. Um, in many ways, it was very similar to slavery. They're stuck in these jobs. They can't get out because of cycles of debt. That's another lecture for another day. But so we've got Sam Hose. He's a sharecropper doing the only real job that is open to him at this time. Um, and in a dispute over how much he's being paid, he's being cheated, but in a dispute over it, dispute with the white uh, landowner turns violent. Uh, and in an act of self-defense, Hose kills the white landowner, chops his head with a hatchet. Um, it's pretty gory. The juniors love that detail. Um, and he kills the guy. Knowing that he's living in the South, just a couple of years, well, 30 to 40 years after the Civil War, still deep in the heart of Jim Crow, right? Segregated facilities, racial violence, the Klan, all these things. Uh, he realizes that he's just killed a white man and he's got to run. So he splits town and disappears as quickly as he can off into the trees of suburban Georgia. Uh, suburban in the sense of 1899, not today, right? So, uh, or anything. Um, so he disappears out into the woods. Um, and quickly, Atlanta newspapers pick up the story of this brutal killing of this white man. Of course, these are white-run papers, so uh, you know there's some bias here, obviously. And they're running stories of this savage person who murdered this white man in cold blood. So if that's the date, the morning papers. The evening papers, the story gets even more sensationalized. And it turns out that he snuck up on the guy in his house while he was eating dinner with his wife and his kids, and he chopped his head open at the dinner table and he fell into his soup. And then he raped his wife in front of, uh, in front of the dying body, like the blood's on the ground, like this ridiculously elaborate story. As you can imagine, uh, everyone gets pretty angry about this, right? It's pretty easy even today through news to kind of whip up a mob real quickly in a court of public opinion. So quickly, the entire region around Atlanta is furious. They need to find this guy and they need to bring him to justice. The newspaper headlines aren't declaring that they should bring him to justice through court, though. They're saying we're going to lynch him. And that's like the top line of the paper, like the largest paper in Atlanta, the Atlanta uh, Constitution. It's big letters across the top, you know, when he's found, he will be lynched and brought to justice. So about 24 hours pass before Sam Hose is caught. He does not make it out of the region. 
A special train is chartered to bring him back to the town where the crime happened. Crime, sorry, scare quotes. Uh, and he's brought before the people. And what's really disturbing, uh, the whole story is disturbing, but what's really disturbing about the story is the way that the local people, the local white people in suburban Atlanta are catching on to this story. Because all the newspaper headlines are discussing first that he needs to be lynched, that it's okay that he should be lynched, and that it's the right thing to do. Then local businesses get involved, okay? Local train stations are chartering direct trains to this town so whoever wants to come and participate can be there. Um, so people are shelling out all this money going, it's this big spectacle. Um, since you didn't sign up for this class, I'm not gonna get too detailed with you, but lynchings are pretty gruesome affairs and they're designed to be public, uh, to intimidate, right? Uh, I always tell my kids the point of a lynching in the Old South uh, was not necessarily to make up for a crime, scare quotes, uh, but to scare and intimidate everybody else as well. That's a more important result. So Sam Hose is uh, brutally murdered. Um, W.E.B. Du Bois is actually in Atlanta when it happens, passes by some um, souvenirs of the killing on display at a local grocery store, um, and is pretty disgusted. Uh, and he writes kind of for a segment of the population that realizes what that is as something that is wrong and truly evil. But at the same time, it'd be a lie to say that the vast majority of people in the Atlanta area don't think it's okay. They think it's fine and what should be done. Which seems a little strange to us, historically speaking, when we look back and say, how can this many people in this one spot in time decide that this is a good thing when we can all objectively look back and say that was awful Second story, about 60 years later in the South, still, two states over to Alabama, or one state over to Alabama, okay, uh, white church leaders are feeling very uh, attacked. It's the 60s, so of course they are, right? Uh, everything's going against them from their perspective, so uh, they take matters into their own hands and they say it's time that we need to speak out about all these people that are turning against what we know is right, what we know is good uh, according to the Bible, and speak out and tell them what is wrong. So they pin this manifesto, they send it off to the local paper, they get it published big in big print about how all these things that are going on in their area are wrong. Uh, something we probably would be kind of excited about, right? Like church leaders taking a stand. The unfortunate flip side, of course, this is history, this is the South in the 60s, so it's not great, right? Uh, they're pinning anti-Martin Luther King stuff. This is Birmingham campaign. Uh, so one of King's more famous campaigns that he leads uh, to desegregate facilities. Uh, and white church leaders across the state of Alabama unite to condemn it. They're very careful with their words because they're church people. They do say that equality is good, right? But that what's going on is wrong. He just needs to chill out, be patient, go with what's happening. Eventually it'll get better. King, of course, does not take very kindly to that. If you know the story, you probably do, right? He writes a letter back from jail in Birmingham, letter from a Birmingham jail, where he pretty much says, he calls out the ministers on their religion and saying, my God cares in justice and equality and doesn't let the good suffer. He even quotes St. Augustine who says that no, uh, an unjust law is not a law at all. Okay, so we've got these two stories, historically speaking, one of which uh, the King story very much is about 
religion and belief and, and Christians, white Christians in the South, right? But the other one, religion's pretty implicitly involved, right? I didn't talk about it, but I'm pretty sure we could say relatively accurately, historically speaking, that most of those people were practicing Christians that were involved in this lynch mob. And in both cases, both stories of people would probably tell you that what they were doing was right, good, and just, and needed to be done, that they were doing what God would have wanted them to do. But when we look back at both of those stories today, it's rather embarrassing, right? Because we would say, how could any Christian certainly say that a lynch mob is okay, and that any action like that is necessary and good? I think that leaves us with two kind of issues to sort through, okay? First, um, kind of, this is kind of a side note, I now know why when I started uh, college for a history degree, my history professors told me, they said a recent study came out, which now this was like a 10, 15 year old study, a recent study came out um, and found that history professors are the second least religious of all disciplines. Number one is philosophy, I guess that makes sense, right? But then I thought, well, at the time I was kind of shocked. I was like, why would you think that? Like, God's in history everywhere. You know, I was coming out of Harding Academy, so I hadn't really been exposed to people who thought differently than that. Um, but then I look back at this and I see all these stories of Christians kind of doing awful things, which we could probably write plenty of books about, right? Uh, and you're like, okay, maybe now I see why maybe that happens. But besides that, okay, we kind of see uh, what was good in 1899 for the majority of the people living in, in the Atlanta area would not be okay today, and actually probably wouldn't even be okay in the 60s, right? Lynching still happened throughout Southern history, uh, but they changed pretty dramatically. There's no more uh, like for an audience in front of everybody type stuff, right? Because everyone gets kind of scared about it and becomes secretive, under cover of dark type stuff in the 60s. So it seems like what was good in those three periods, 1899, 1960, and today has changed radically. Seems that way. but. Uh, if the majority of people at the time thought those acts were right, but we think they're wrong, how can that be? That's the quandary, and that is what is at the root of this idea of can we be good without God? Because there's two solutions, okay? Two solutions. If they thought it was right, <laughs> if they thought it was right then, but it wasn't, or, if, or we don't think it is, okay? There's only two solutions to that philosophical problem, right? Much less the problem of the actions, right? One is that we're both right. I apologize for my handwriting. In class, I always type things. So one is that we're both right, okay? This is probably a bit more of a popular idea today. Not that people in 1899 were right, but the philosophical aspect of this, okay? It's this idea that your goodness, your rightness, your correctness is informed by your perspective, your place in time. It's all relative, right? Very postmodern idea, right? What I think is good may not be what Kyle thinks is good, but we're both equally correct, right? Because then we don't have to have a confrontation about it or have an argument about it, okay? This idea that what's good is informed by your perspective also affects other realm, right? Truth is probably the hot button one right now, right? Truth is informed by your perspective. What's true to Kyle or what's true to me or maybe what's true to CNN or what's true to Fox or what's true to the president or what's true to the opposition or any of these things, it's okay, it's all in their perspective. I don't like that. I know you probably don't like that either, right? We sometimes like it when we're not talking about it philosophically, but right now we vote. So if that's not the solution, right? Uh, if there is uh, no objective goodness at all, it wouldn't matter, period. So we're gonna ignore that for a minute. Second option, okay? Uh, 
Once again, only one of us is right. Okay, so what would that look like? Okay, and under the, if it, only one of us is correct, then that must mean that there is some objective correctness or goodness, right? There has to be a standard. In that case, one of us is wrong by the standard and one of us is right by the standard. Or I guess both of us could be wrong by the standard, but probably not both of us be right by the standard, okay? Uh, this is reassuring, I think. I think we like this a little bit because we like to know that by some standard outside of ourselves that we're right, right? That it's not like Scott world, right? Where everything I do is peachy, right? And, and I, I need to know that someone else thinks that what I did was correct, right? So whenever after I do something, I have to ask Ashley if it was okay or did I do that right, right? Like I need another voice to say, yes, it was. And I'm broken when they say it wasn't, right? So, uh, oh, but uh, then the question is, if this is the case, then how do we know what is good? What is that objective goodness, right? So, discussion question. If you had to guess, try to think in your mind, how does our world, okay, this is not just how does this room, right, I think it would be a different question, but how does this world define what is good? What is something that you think you could say, I think the vast majority or maybe even all of this country, let's not even go whole world because we'll get it, it'll be harder, right? I think this is something that most of this country would agree is a good thing. What would you say? Okay, so something that fosters peace, and did you say? Uh, I like fosters peace, prosperity, and comfort, or something like that. I don't know. Peace. It's hard to do. Well, yeah, it is. Prosperity, comfort. Okay. Any more thoughts? What would most of the world or most of the country say was good? Or perhaps to use our. Um, game from the beginning, something that was not bad, if that makes it easier for you. That which brings happiness to probably. Happiness. Okay. In today's world, it's that what makes me feel good. Right? What feels good, what's happy. Okay. Happiness feels good. Of course, we're going to try to come up with some cultural standard of what is good. The problem we're going to hit, the wall we're going to run into, is these are very nice broad categories, right? If I pick something that makes me feel good, but it doesn't make other people feel good, it's no longer good, right? Or if I think something, pop, what I think, or what one person thinks fosters peace, may not foster peace to somebody else, right? It's that cultural relativism that kind of keeps us unmoored and keeps us from being able to figure out what actually is good, okay? So, we need some objective reality to know what is good. Fortunately, as Christians, we have that, right? We know what is good because God explains that to us pretty clearly in the texts, right? So, real quick, can I get some people to volunteer to read? I need someone to take uh, Psalm 119.68. Anybody? 119.68. When else are you going to get to read verse 68 in the Bible, right? James 1.17. James 1.17. Spencer can have that. Anna, you can have Galatians 5.22 and 23. Galatians 5.22 and 23. 
All right, David, you got it? Yeah, this is Psalms 119, verse 68. Verse 68. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. Okay. One seven, who had James? Uh, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like the shifting shadows. Okay. And then Galatians. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Right. Okay. So... We're at it. We're following option number two. Only one is right. How do we know what objective good is? Objective good is to be like God, right? Psalm 119 tells us God is good. In him there is no wrong, right? Every good and perfect gift in James comes from God, right? If we are reflecting God, if we are being like God, if we are exhibiting the fruits of the Spirit like Anna read, right, then we are being good. Of course, the problem with that is the same thing that is a problem with what's culturally good, right? Fruits of the Spirit are kind of some big words, right? <laughs> like, what is goodness really, right? What is it to be like God, and what does that look like? And we certainly have a problem in that. I'm pretty sure, once again, that the people from the two stories I told thought they were being like God in what they were doing, even though they weren't. But if goodness is to be like God, okay, when we act out the fruits of the Spirit, we are acting like Him. Um, in this sense, in that way, okay, if we're answering our initial question, can we be good without God? The answer is no, right? Because how else would you know what good is, right? Uh, there's no objective standard. Uh, you could probably, maybe, say you ascribe to a different religious worldview, right, and say that you have some good standard there also, maybe. Um, although I think through our other questions that we'll look at in the series, you'll kind of see why maybe our current selection is where you want to be, or what makes most sense. Uh, but you need some sort of objective standard to tie it to, right? Otherwise, you're unmoored, right? How do you know what is and what is not? Follow-up question, which Derek brought up last week during Kyle's class and then decided not to show up to find out the thrilling answer to. I hope he's listening later and he's feeling really embarrassed. I think actually his kids have the flu, but it's probably, probably a cover. Um, but the real question, you know, I think philosophically it's fun to think about what does it mean to be good without God? Can we be good without God? But the real practical question that jumps out on our mind whenever we talk about goodness and God's role in that is what happens to people who are good people but don't believe in God? And that's kind of what we started to hit on a little bit last week, and Kyle generously saved for me this week. Thanks, buddy. Um, and I think uh, that's a pretty valid question, uh, certainly one to think about. Uh, but there's an important disclaimer in all of that, right? Uh, to first, to think that we would be able to know or to judge or to assume is a pretty risky endeavor anyway, right? Um, if someone will go ahead and be finding it, Romans 2, verse 1 through 4. Anybody? Romans 2, 1 through 4. Got it. Thank you. Okay, while she's looking that up, the idea uh, that we would know as Christians and that we'd have some solution, whether A, whether or not someone is good, anyway, right? Whether they're being like God and we would know for sure. Because uh, once again, if our friends from the two historical stories were making those judgments, it might be kind of an embarrassing answer. So we kind of have to tread carefully here, right? Okay, go ahead and read that if you don't mind. Loading. Ah, man. <laughs> the internet's out to get us today. No, it's fine. Um, no, it's fine. 
Anyone else got it? Go ahead, Anna. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So I'm super antsy to stick my foot in that, right? The idea that I'm going to be able to come up here and decide whether or not someone who is good, or A, determine whether or not they're good, right? Whether or not they meet with the objective standard we've just outlined, the idea that to be good is to be like God, uh, and to assess whether or not they are worthy of or, or to be accepted by God, that's kind of a treacherous spot to be. So that's kind of the disclaimer. But if we're going to pretend we're not judging and we're just philosophically curious, right? Because we are. What is the answer? We'll kind of tread into it for just just a few minutes. Okay. Uh, so, um, our first major hang-up, if we're about to try to figure out this, or first major hang-up for someone who is good but doesn't follow God uh, to achieve eternal life, to go to heaven, salvation, however you want to understand it, right, is that it's pretty clear throughout the Bible that the only path to heaven is through Christ, right? Uh, we could read several passages about that, but I think you know they're there. There's uh, certainly, it's pretty clear in Romans, uh, in chapter 3 of Romans, right? The only way um, to heaven is through Christ, Christ's salvation, the idea that we've all sinned, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We all require Christ's forgiveness to get there. Just because I'm a Christian does not mean that I somehow get there because I'm good, right? Faith works. This is all ringing a bell for everybody, right? That's a huge hang-up to this situation, which makes it a little bit sticky. Okay, if someone doesn't mind, can we start going to, this is the last one for today, Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, and we'll start in verse 18, be pulling that up. So, given that we've all sinned, right, not just people who are saved, who are definitely, you know, they're following Christ, they're asking for forgiveness, they've been baptized, they're committed to the Lord, but given that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right, we all require some sort of intercession from Christ to be saved anyway, no matter what. So just because we are members of the church doesn't necessarily make us any initially way better off, right? We've just already made aware of and been and accepted that gift. People who are maybe unconsciously acting like God, or they're acting good, but not really understanding why that's coming from, right? They just haven't accepted that, so that's a problem. Uh, who's got Luke 18 doesn't mind reading it for us? Thank you, David. 18 through 29. And Rula asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Through 29. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was like, I feel like there's more. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. And when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go to the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, 
What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in, in this time and in this age to come eternal life. Okay, I like Luke's version of that story better because there's a bit more exposition at the end there, right? We think we're very familiar with the first half of that story, rich young ruler walking away sad at the end. So there's two kind of keys. Hope I don't need that later. Uh, there's two kind of keys there at the end, right? First, uh, at the very, very end, uh, when it's talking about truly anyone who has sacrificed or lost uh, or lost or given for Christ, they're going to be saved, right? That's something we are familiar with, right? Because that kind of rings familiar to kind of our Christian, natural Christian philosophy. But prior to that, and this is something that gets into kind of where the debate is headed. Um, those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. God is capable of anything. So here's where the, the theology splits, okay? So as I'm preparing for this and I'm trying to decide, okay, where in the world am I on this, right? Because I generally try not to think about, think about it, right? I don't know if anyone else is like that, but when I come up with something that I think I might be scared of the answer to or not like the answer to, I try to like not keep it in the forefront of my mind. So the theology splits a little bit and there's two options, okay? So the first option, I do need it. Uh, first option is, well, those people are unknowingly acting like God. God is capable of saving them, even if they have not committed their lives to Christ in some formal means. There's a whole lot, which we don't have time to go into, looking at uh, some passages in Daniel and in Revelation and suggesting that when the dead are brought back, they're given a chance, they're told the message because they didn't know it, or they're given a chance to commit, and then they have this option to be saved. So there's that kind of wing. And then the other wing, which is more what I'm familiar with in the way that I was raised, I guess, is... Right? It's kind of a bit more uncomfortable, isn't it? The idea that, well... Jesus is the only way, and they did not choose Jesus when they had the chance. It's not like they get like a free spin, right? That's the end of it. That one's pretty uncomfortable. But these are these two theological views. I'm not going to tell you which one's right because I don't know. But they're both out there. But I think, and this is kind of where we're heading up to wrap up, okay? Uh, I think the question itself, there's a reason there's all this writing and thinking about it, okay? I think it kind of gets our interest for two big reasons. First, I think it gets our interest because, I mean, how many times have you had a really interesting conversation about whether or not some famous person is going to go to heaven or not? Like, famous good person who didn't know. Like, I think every year in eighth grade history when I used to teach that, I got questions about Gandhi. Like, is Gandhi going to heaven? I don't know, probably not. Um, I don't know, right? That's not my place to say or to know. It is my place to say or know that the only way to heaven is through Christ and that Christ is merciful by saving us, right? I know that for sure. The rest of it, though, I don't know. But secondly, I think the reason that this question is so interesting to us is because we're kind of looking for like an easy like cop-out so that we don't have to talk to people we know that are good, who might need to hear us say what we believe. Because like, well, they're good, they're good people. God wouldn't condemn good people, so I probably don't need to have, I don't have to go talk to them or make this awkward, right? I think that's what it's more about, really. I think that's what it's about for me when I think about that. 
Because, man, it'd be so much easier if you could just say, well, anyone who's living a pretty good life is going to be okay, and now I don't have to put myself in that awkward place of going to talk to them and saying, I know you're living a pretty good life, but I think you're missing something. Because no one really wants to be in that place. We kind of have this hesitancy to do it. So that's why it's important to remember that true goodness uh, is where it comes from, right? There's an objective goodness out there. Um, Yeah, people around us may be reflecting some traits of acting like God, possibly unknowingly, right? Or uh, maybe because they live in the world that he created. Um, And that's where it comes from. But we have to remember not to try to take the easy way out when we see those people who are acting in what we might view as an objectively good way. Um, We don't want to assume that we know, for example, that we would know that they are safe or that they are saved and use it as some solution so that we don't have to have a conversation or step out of our box and have that, have that moment with them. Because then we could potentially, years later down the road with people looking back at history, look like some pretty big morons if we didn't have a conversation because it might be awkward uh, when really we just had to step out there and do it. So uh, that's all I've got. That's, there's a lot you could have gone into on that, but that's where I went with it. So announcements, Kyle? That's great. I want to thank Scott for teaching this morning, for doing an excellent job, for bringing historical perspective, which is different than, you know, me as a orthodontist, as a science person. I don't know a lot of these stories, and so uh, that historical perspective that he brought and that he always brings is really uh, is really great. So I love I love the stories. As terrible as those two stories were, I love being aware of that and made and made aware of that. And I think it's just to bring home this idea that if we think that right now in 2018 that we have goodness figured out as a culture or that we have equality figured out or tolerance or or whatever thing that we're holding up as a culture to be good and appropriate and correct, then we are fooling ourselves. And certainly uh, there is this idea, probably in any generation, that we've got things figured out, that we're the smartest that we've ever been. And the truth is, we're not. The truth is, is that God has been around from way beyond when we've been around, and way before and way after, and uh, is much bigger than us, and has a capacity for truth that is obviously uh, beyond what we'll ever be able to grasp. And so I think that's what a lot of this series is about, is trying to understand, both in the series that was before this, Attributes of God, who God is, And from that now, philosophically, how we should live or how we should understand our existence. And if it doesn't start with God, then it really doesn't start with anything that could be objective. So we're just basing it on our feelings and the things that we've done culturally. And as we see it, just time points 60, 100 years ago, man, we were way off then. But what gives us the right to say that we were way off in the first place? Love philosophy, love these questions. It gives us a lot to chew on and think about. We'll be back with another one next week. This is a question that, that Grant will be looking at, and it's going to be the intersection of faith and science. And so we'll begin talking about some scientific topics. David Flatt will follow them the week after with the Kalam cosmological argument. And then I'll be back the week after that with the teleological argument, so another scientific argument. And then we'll wrap up with uh, historical evidence for the resurrection. So there's a lot more to come, and I hope that you will join us. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you next time.